Welcome to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz, a candid conversation as we learn about types of dementias, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, frontal temporal, and Lewy body, and the effects on the people we love. Jill's years of dedication and experience help you adapt, overcome obstacles, and find positive outcomes. It's time for Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. Hello, my friends. I'm really delighted today because, first of all, I want to thank all my listeners. I now have listeners in all 50 states plus DT and 65 countries as of this morning. And I appreciate everybody tuning in and your emails and all of your questions. And I let some of you know that I have Dr. Huntington Potter on my show today. And he is the professor of neurology and the vice chair for basic research at the Department of Neurology at the University of Colorado Hospital, and his his work includes uh, not only the uh, Alzheimer's Cognition Center and being the director of that, but he works in conjunction with the Linda Cernick Institute for Down Syndrome. So happy to have you, Dr. Potter. How are you? I'm great, Jill. It's wonderful to be back. Oh, I'm so happy to have you back on the show. You've been a very busy person. That's true. There's uh, no respite for people working on Alzheimer's disease. We have to solve this problem. Yes, we do. And, you know, I've told my listeners in the past and when you've been on the show that I believe very much in your research work and your leukine study. And so if you don't mind, I'd like you to reacquaint them with the leukine study, what you're trying to accomplish and how far it's come over the past few years. Where are you now? Uh, That's a great uh, introduction, and I appreciate it. As you know, we've been working on GMCSF or leukine for over 10 years now from our first mouse studies, which showed that it was a, a potential treatment for Alzheimer's disease. It comes from our finding that uh, it's increased in people with rheumatoid arthritis who are protected from developing Alzheimer's, and then we investigated whether it was indeed a treatment, and it it looked great in the mice, so we started a clinical trial that has just been finished, and the results are published and are extremely promising. Take-home lesson is that people who took GMCSF or leukine as an injection five days a week for three weeks, actually improved in their memory scores, and they also improved in their blood biomarkers of Alzheimer's uh, brain pathology. That's all great news, but it's, of course, an early study, and we're now in the midst of starting a, a second one funded by the NIH and the Alzheimer's Association and the Global Down Syndrome Foundation, which will give us a longer Uh, treatment period, and more information from these wonderful participants who we uh, will uh, recruit into that study when it gets started in a month or two. So people don't really truly understand how a research study works. Can you shed some light on that? Sure. The first uh, step in any kind of human study into Alzheimer's disease or COVID-19 is to establish that a particular treatment works in a mouse model, for instance. And uh, we've already done that. And then uh, you have to ask permission from the FDA and the the local university to start a clinical trial. 
That requires a uh, 100 to 200 page protocol that has to be approved. And then we start recruiting uh, participants. Uh, and it's very important to have participants that are not suffering from any other kind of mental illness. They have to have pure Alzheimer's disease, and they have to have no pacemaker, so they can take an MRI, they can't have cancer. So there are some restrictions so that we get a very clean uh, clinical trial. And that's what we did in our first trial, and it worked very well, and that's what we'll have to do in this trial as well. You know, it's very exciting to see science coming so far. And I, I've really enjoyed the story about your million-dollar dollar mouse that you can't even touch or see or play with <laughs> that kind of started this whole thing. Um, can, can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. We, um, we had been interested in the fact that people with rheumatoid arthritis protected. And the idea of the people who discovered that was that they were taking anti-inflammatory drugs for their pain and their inflammation in their joints, and maybe they were protecting them from Alzheimer's. Uh, we and others had known that Alzheimer's disease patients have inflammation in the brain. But a big clinical trial testing those drugs failed completely. So we had a different idea, which was that people with rheumatoid arthritis are naturally protected because they secrete something into the blood that gets into the brain and helps get rid of the amyloid deposits or prevent them from, from establishing themselves to begin with. And when we started looking, we focused on a couple of proteins. We did a lot of tests. And the one that turned out to be the best is called GMCFF, or the medical name is, is leukine. It worked in the mice, and it was an FDA-approved drug already for other indications, namely to stimulate the bone marrow to make more white blood cells. Many white blood cells act like little Pac-Men. They go around the body, and they eat up things that aren't supposed to be there. And, of course, in Alzheimer's disease, what's not supposed to be there is the amyloid in the brain. And so in the mouse studies, GMCSF was able to remove amyloid from the brain and return the mice to normal memory. And that was the start, and because it was already FDA-approved, the steps to a clinical trial were faster than it might have been otherwise. I just love that. And so I have a question as, as a continuum here. So the first group, you, as you were moving through the first phase, you saw some improvement in the people being studied correct? So what is your goal now with the second phase? What, what do you need to accomplish? Is it longevity in the drug working, that the leukine drug that, that you are, are making? Does it have to work for a longer period of time? Do you have to study more people? What's the goal of the second phase? You're exactly right. It's both of those. So we will uh, be looking at uh, 28 people with leukine and 14 people without, so the, the slightly larger number of people, and we will treat them for 24 weeks instead of only three. And that will allow us to be more sure that there are no bad side effects because it's a longer treatment phase, and it will tell whether the improvement that we saw in the first trial is maintained or even extended to 
even greater treatment benefit in the in the second trial. So those are the two main reasons that uh, we have to carry out the second trial. If that is also successful, then the next step would be the final phase three trial where the FDA can help us design it so that if it works, then they can uh, vote to approve the drug. Okay. And so the participants, you were talking about the fact that they can't have any other neurological impairments or dysfunction. But are you looking for people who are just starting to show signs? Or do you look for a participant that is more in the mid-stage of the disease? What specifically are you looking for for criteria to join the study? Good question. It's the mid-stage, what we call mild to moderate. Uh, Not very, very early in the mild cognitive impairment stage and not very late. And and the reason for that is that we want to see whether people get better, um, and, and that really requires them to be in the mid-stage so that there isn't some random chance that they're a little bit better when they start out being pretty okay to begin with. And we also want to make sure they don't get worse, which would be terrible, of course. Um, so, Right mid-stage, mild to moderate is the goal. And and another goal that you may have with this, are you looking for this drug to be the cure or to slow progression or to slow the progression and actually fix the brain along the way, if that is even possible? That's a dream, but... <laughs> It is a dream, and it has not been reached yet with any drug that has been uh, tested so far in people. Uh, The best ones uh, slow the decline a little bit. And as you know, and we can get into this, the FDA has just approved a new drug for Alzheimer's disease that does get rid of the amyloid, uh, but only slows the decline. Um, And even that's controversial. Our study in Leukine was much better in the sense that it actually improved the memory of the people taking Leukine compared to where they started and also compared to the people who just got the placebo. Um, That, of course, has has never been seen before, but it's very important to carry out the longer trial to make sure that that benefit is retained or, if we're lucky, even extended. Right. So obviously you want it to be sustainable so that we have a real game changer in the market. That would be ideal, but we are only cautiously optimistic at the moment. It's very important for the science to determine the conclusion. Okay. And right now, your GCMF uh, leukine study, you haven't had any of the issues that the Adjahelm study has had. Is that correct? That's correct. Adjahelm and all uh, drugs that have been developed to get rid of amyloid in the brain of people with Alzheimer's due to the fact that they're an antibody that can get in and, and teach the body to get rid of that amyloid have side effects. Those side effects are what we call arias, and they include brain swelling and bleeding into the brain. Now, those sound terrible, and if they're extensive, they are. 
most people who have these uh, micro hemorrhages and, and edema or swelling in the brain don't show even any clinical symptoms. They don't, they don't know they have it. We only see it when we look at a brain scan. But nonetheless, they are a potential uh, side effect of, of risk, and we did not see any of that in the people who had been treated with GMCSF or leukine. But we only treated them for three weeks. So uh, we looked for three weeks. We looked 45 days after we stopped the uh, drug. Uh, there have been no indications of that. That's the other reason why it's very important to carry out a longer trial, 24 weeks, to make sure that that uh, benefit is uh, continued in the, in the memory uh, tests, that the benefit uh, continues in the blood tests for, for Alzheimer's pathology in the brain, and that no bad side effects crop up with the longer treatment. Right. So can you explain why there was such an uproar? It was all over the news. And just as best as you can, there was controversy surrounding Aduhelm because of the fact that the FDA approved it at against the wishes of an advisory committee who voted unanimously that maybe the drug wasn't ready. And there's been been some controversy about that. Can you explain a little bit about what happened? Yes, there was controversy, and it comes from from several uh, balancing acts that the FDA has to make when it decides whether to approve a new drug or not. The Scientific Advisory Committee felt that the data were very good that the drug Adjohelm was able to remove amyloid from the brain but they were less convinced that the data were positive enough that the drug slowed the decline of the cognition. And the reason they were unhappy about that is that the phase three clinical trials that were carried out with Adjahelm were were disparate. One of them showed the slowing of the decline and the other one didn't quite. And, and the reason that didn't quite is what the discussion was all about. Was it because the um, people who in the second trial didn't all get the high dose and those that got the high dose were sometimes taken off? Was it a, that they didn't have the right genotype? Um, and Biogen argued that the data, when you put it all together, suggested that there was a a reduced decline. The other, of course, is how much you think that amyloid is an important part of the disease process. And the FDA, on balance, decided that the fact that Adrahelm was able to very successfully remove the uh, amyloid from the brain made it highly likely that in the long run there would be clinical benefit. Um, But they admitted that uh, the data weren't as strong as they might have otherwise required in a new drug application. The reason, of course, is that there are no drugs that remove amyloid that are FDA-approved up until now. There have been no drugs that, in fact, attacked any of the basic biochemistry of of Alzheimer's disease. All of the previous drugs have merely been 
crutches to help nerve cells work a little bit better while the disease process continued. So in comparison to what was available um, before the FDA started considering Agile, they decided that this was uh, worth uh, trying. Um, of course, there are these potential side effects, and that will have to be dealt with. Uh, it's not a drug that is going to be used willy-nilly for everyone with Alzheimer's, even though the FDA did um, approve that. We have some time in front of us to decide who is going to be most benefited from uh, from uh, the treatment with, with Adjohelm. And uh, the FDA and the companies that fund it uh, are, are still on the fence about exactly who uh, will uh, be best uh, benefited and who should pay for it. Okay. And I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. So you will be participating with the fourth, the phase four trial at University of Colorado Hospital? Yes, we will. We were part of the phase three trial and uh, we've been invited to be part of the phase four trial, which is the, the extension of the of the phase three trial. Uh, we're certainly interested in uh, helping the community and physicians and the company get as much information as possible to uh, determine whether indeed the preliminary indications are are repeatable that uh, Adjahelm slows the course of disease. Now, of course, we're not satisfied and, and the world is not satisfied with merely slowing the course of Alzheimer's disease. We actually want to stop it or reverse it. Um, and that's what we and others are working on. It's possible that uh, Adjahelm uh, can be supplemented with, uh, let's say, another drug that will make it work better um, or uh, work in a completely different way. So that we're in the very early stages now of developing effective drugs against the actual process of Alzheimer's disease. Well, that's really hopeful. Can we just take a moment to get into the pathology of the disease? So people get a little confused. You had spoken about the amyloid uh, a few minutes ago, and you and I have talked at length about the tau protein that can invade the body. When you are trying to Asern, whether or not a person is in the stages of this and you're having diagnostic testing, you might take spinal fluid, you know, to see if that's an indicator or a biomarker. Um, there are ways that you might look for the disease from, from a more biological side. Can you explain that to the listeners? Yes, Jill. It's uh, been a great uh, effort uh, by scientists all over the world to develop an early diagnostic for Alzheimer's disease. And some of those efforts have been uh, directed at developing better clinical diagnosis, question and answer, and um, uh, tests in the laboratory. Mm -hmm. uh, the other approach is to take either cerebral spinal fluid or blood and look for indications of damage in the brain. And those have become better and better over the last uh, 10 years or so, so that we can be pretty confident that if a person shows memory problems, confusion about time and place, therefore has the clinical symptoms of dementia, 
And they also have certain blood or CSF indicators of Alzheimer type dementia in the brain, then we can be pretty sure they have Alzheimer's disease. Of course, the trickiness is that uh, many people have two disorders like vascular dementia and Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease, and, and that becomes trickier. But at least we can be pretty sure from these, from these blood markers and the clinical diagnosis whether somebody has Alzheimer's. Then we can ask whether if they've been treated with a new drug, do they actually show benefit? in their blood or CSF biomarkers, and in their cognitive function. And, and that's what uh, the, the Adjahelm studies did. They showed that there might be a decline and there was a reduction in amyloid in the brain. And in that case, they used the blood biomarkers, but they also actually imaged the brain and saw the amyloid go away. Interesting. And so to explain that a little further, the way you can see... Alzheimer's in a live brain is through the Pittsburgh B compound? Is that Yes, Pittsburgh compound B or some commercial uh, molecules that do the same thing. The whole principle is that they are special molecules that have been designed to stick to amyloid in a living uh, body, a mouse, a rat, or a human. Um, so they're injected into the bloodstream, they go throughout the body, and they stick to any amyloid they can, can find. Um, and then they're made very slightly radioactive so that if there are radiation detectors around the brain, they can detect whether that molecule, Pittsburgh Compound B or some of the other commercial ones, are actually sticking in the brain. And as we age, all of us develop a little amyloid, but somebody with Alzheimer's disease develops a lot. And so you can tell with this PET scanner um, whether that little bit of radioactive tip is, is sticking in the brain or not. And, and that's what they did when they uh, tested people with Adjahelm. They treated them and then they followed them over time to see if the amyloid increased, stayed the same, or decreased. And uh, to everybody's uh, amazement and, and uh, happiness, uh, these drugs are able to get rid of amyloid in the brain. That's really exciting. And you have worked, uh, you've had an intense focus on the beta amyloid. But there are, there's another type of a protein that can damage the brain, the tau protein. Could you explain the way that those affect the brain and why both of them can do quite a bit of damage. They sure can. And they were the uh, proteins first identified by Alzheimer back in 1907. And they've remained the pathological hallmark of Alzheimer's disease. So the difference is that the amyloid deposits as little Brillo pads uh, throughout the parts of the brain that are involved in cognition, and they're outside of cells. And then the tau is a protein that deposits inside nerve cells and keeps them from working. We currently believe that the amyloid begins the process of Alzheimer's disease, and then tau tangles are a result of that amyloid damaging the nerve cells. But clearly, if we could prevent the nerve cells from dying, even if there was amyloid present, then that would be a potential treatment. So some scientists are working to get rid of tau 
both independently or together with getting rid of amyloid. And there was just an announcement today that an anti-tau antibody seems to be slightly beneficial in people with uh, with Alzheimer's disease in the sense that it slows the cognition a little bit. Um, and that's the first indication that an anti-tau approach uh, might work. All the previous ones have failed. Uh, it's not published yet, so we're going to have to wait and see what the peer review uh, says. But it's at least a step in the right direction. How exciting. And, you know, I push you on this all the time, Hunt. But the reason I do that is when we had my mom's autopsy, and I've told you over and over again, it came back that she had no beta amyloid in her brain, although her symptoms presented as though she had Alzheimer's for 20-plus years. So it's just confounding me. <laughs> and it probably confounded her physicians even more because they really expected it to be uh, to be Alzheimer's based on the clinical symptoms. But then uh, when she died and, and, and gave her brain to science, uh, it turned out to be a, a different disease altogether. And, and that is um, not uncommon, let me put it that way, mm-hmm. because the clinical symptoms are based on nerve cells dying. And if they die in the right places and uh, the physician says, well, gee, those are the right places for Alzheimer's, then um, they can they can make a mistake. Luckily, a really good physician, and, and your mother had the best, if I recall, right. Uh, is right only about 90% of the time. Isn't this confounding to you? I mean, you you came into this realm looking for a cure for Alzheimer's, but there are so many variations. There's so many variants and so many other neurological disorders that we now are very clear about. Well, as clear as we can be about, uh, you know, frontal temporal, Lewy body, and, and so on and so forth. I don't think I've ever asked you this. What what pushed you to go down this road? Well, um it, it isn't because my grandfather had dementia. Uh, he did, but that didn't induce it. It was largely because I was in a medical school in a department of neurology, and the most uh, critical neurological disease affecting the most people and having the biggest uh, financial impact was Alzheimer's disease. And it was a genetic disease, that is to say about 70% of the risk, 60% of the risk is due to genetics. And it was a biochemical disease. And those were my two trainings, genetics and biochemistry. So it seemed uh, a a, uh, a target uh, that was made for, for my expertise and interests. I have to tell you that uh, back in 1985, uh, I thought that we would have a drug treatment uh, in 10 years, and it's been a lot longer. Right. Um, it's a very, very wily disease that has uh, stymied all of our best efforts until most recently where we've gotten some, some hints that we have some drugs that may be beneficial. Well, I may be unrealistic, but... I feel like I will see a cure in my time. I hope it's in your lab. But do you feel well, that? Well, thank do you. Think, you. <laughs> do you think we will find a cure in our lifetime? I think we will find a prevention. Um, the reason I hesitate to say that we'll find a cure is because in order to find a cure, 
you have to take somebody who has clear Alzheimer's disease and make them perfect again. Mm. Um, I think that will be hard because a lot of nerve cells have already died in the brain. But stopping it, I think, is more realistic. The fact that we saw an improvement in one measure of memory in the GMCSF trial is hopeful that we may be able to improve things somewhat. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm keeping my eye on that. Uh, we've also just finished some experiments in mice that have Down syndrome but no Alzheimer's disease and some aged mice that have no Alzheimer's disease. They just are old and they have memory problems. And both of those mice were returned to normal by GMCSF. So there may be ways to improve cognition in other dementias, uh, such as the one you mentioned, mm -hmm. um, as well. And so we're, we're not focusing only on Alzheimer's disease, although that's our major focus. We're keeping an eye on the potential for improvement in other disorders as well. That is so exciting. We're just going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of our conversation with Dr. Huntington Potter. Living and working with Alzheimer's and other dementias can often be challenging. Summit Resilience Training provides education, utilizing non-medical approaches for those who work with our friends affected by dementia. Believing families still need one-on-one -on -one assistance, we provide classes which help them understand the diseases affecting their loved ones, offering strategies and techniques for success with activities of daily living and working with confusing behaviors. We offer in-home assessments to clarify symptoms of dementia diseases and help families work together to find moments of joy while living with memory loss and impairment. Education programs instilling person-centered care philosophies are offered for professional caregivers working in communities and homes, which can be customized for their staff. Training is also available for first responders, such as law enforcement, fire, and EMT personnel. We are passionate that people with dementias, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and others, are approached with compassion and understanding, and those who work with them have all the tools they need for success. Call us at Summit Resilience Training, 303-420-6988 to schedule a class or in-home assessment. Visit our website at summitresiliencetraining.com for more information. Welcome back to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. All right, we are back, and I have Dr. Huntington Potter in my studio today, and he is the director of the University of Colorado's Alzheimer's Research Center, but it's called Dementia Center for, how do, how do we say this these days? We changed the name. We did change the name, and it's now the University of Colorado Alzheimer's and Cognition Center. Ah. And the reason we did that was because we feel that all forms of cognitive decline, whether it be due to Alzheimer's disease and Alzheimer's disease-related disorder, vascular dementia, Down syndrome, or even normal aging, are all within the realm of our research expertise and, and should be considered our goal. I love that. I think it's so needed. And this center reaches a five-state area. And until you started this center, we had nothing in the Colorado area for miles and miles. Yes. 
for years, we had a very dedicated behavioral neurologist who was able to see maybe 100 patient uh, visits a year. Um, and since then, we've grown astronomically. Now we see some 2,700 unique patient visits per year. We've opened up research in clinical aspects of Alzheimer's disease and related disorders and uh, translational research, that is the development of new drugs, uh, new diagnostics. It's all come from a real dedication by the University of Colorado, the Global Down Syndrome Foundation, and the state of Colorado as well. Um, and without them, we, we couldn't have made this uh, amount of progress. We're also very grateful to donors who have stepped up to the plate and partnered with us to get this research off the ground uh, here in Denver, the center of the front range and extending uh, throughout Colorado and even with collaborators across the globe. Well, you know, that's my favorite thing to talk about, raising money for you. And so oh. I, <laughs> I'm always trying to help you with that. So when uh, I post this podcast for listeners on my website, summitresiliencetraining.com, you will find a link to donate to Dr. Huntington Potter and the University of Colorado Research Center's work. And please, uh, all you listeners out there, go on my website, give a donation. You've heard the good information he's telling you today, and it's hopeful for a future without Alzheimer's. Having said that, would you uh, uh, once again explain to the listeners why you are working with the Linda Cernick Institute on Down syndrome and the correlation between Down syndrome and Alzheimer's? Oh, that's one of my favorite topics. Have you got six hours? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Right. No, uh, Jill, when I first came to Colorado, it was because the Linda Cernick Institute for Down Syndrome was already here and the university needed an Alzheimer's center uh, developed, which we did. Uh, and the reason that I was excited was because, as you know, because I've told you many times, people with Down syndrome are at very high risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. Every single one of them develops the brain pathology by the time they're 30 or 40 years old, and the majority become demented by the time they're 50 or 60. Now, of course, that's because they live to be 50 or 60, and 20 or 30 years ago, that didn't happen. But now they are living longer, full life, but uh, they are uh, at risk of developing Alzheimer's. And the reason for that is because the main Alzheimer's gene the one that makes the amyloid protein is on chromosome 21, and everyone with Down syndrome has three copies of that chromosome instead of two copies, and so they make more of the amyloid peptide, and they make more of the amyloid, and you can see it begin to develop in the teenage years and the 20s, and as I say, by the time they're 30 or 40, they have full-blown Alzheimer's disease in the brain. That means that if we study people with Down syndrome, we're studying people with Alzheimer's disease and vice versa. Does the chromosome 21 also have a triplet for people that just have Alzheimer's, or is that just the people with Down syndrome? That's what we have been very excited to learn over the last uh, five or eight years, and that is that people with typical Alzheimer's disease 
actually have trisomy 21 cells in the brain. They weren't born that way. They didn't have Down syndrome, but they developed these abnormal cells in the brain with three copies of chromosome 21 over the course of their life. So by the time they die, they have about 10% of their nerve cells with three copies of chromosome 21. And that makes the connection between Down syndrome and Alzheimer's disease even more poignant because it means that people with typical Alzheimer's disease are partially Down syndrome in their brain and actually throughout their body by the time they, they die. That's not only true for Alzheimer's disease, but we and others have found it to be true for frontal temporal dementia of all different kinds, for Huntington's disease, uh, for Neiman-Pick disease. It turns out that many disorders of neuronal death in the brain start by having this wrong number of chromosomes in many of their cells. So they look like people with Down syndrome, but only partially. So it's all connected, and we're working very hard to understand why that happens to try to develop drugs that would prevent it from happening. I guess it's a $64,000 question why people that have the triple of the chromosome 21 don't have Down syndrome, but Down syndrome folks can get Alzheimer's. <laughs> yes, it is. And, and you've hit on one of the great mysteries. But uh, the, the main reason is that um, the people who have these three copies of chromosome 21 that they developed over the course of their life uh, developed in the typical way, so they don't have Down syndrome. Um, and all of the features of Down syndrome that you and I know so well are due to the developmental problems that arise from three copies of chromosome 21. But if you develop three copies of chromosome 21 as an adult and, and uh, develop uh, those cells, first of all, it's not 100% of the cells. It's only five or ten percent and second of all it's only after you've already developed all of your structures and uh, features of, of a typical person so that's the reason they don't have down syndrome okay that makes sense now I want to go ahead and expand on some other studies that you've been working on over the years one of them is one of my favorite topics coffee <laughs> <laughs> so what other what other studies are you working on? Well, to, to touch base briefly with, with caffeine and coffee, um, we did find that people who uh, drank coffee uh, over the course of their, of their life had a reduced risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. That was known by, by several groups. And we also found that people who came into the clinic with a high caffeine level and mild cognitive impairment did not convert to Alzheimer's disease whether those who had low caffeine level in their blood when they came in did tend to convert to Alzheimer's disease. We also tested mice where we could control what they ate and drank, and uh, if we fed them caffeine, they didn't get Alzheimer's disease. So that's all very exciting as a potential treatment. Of course, um, not everyone can drink coffee in large amounts, and, and so we're interested in finding out what it is about caffeine that, that protects the brain, and other people have carried out that research uh, even further than, than we have. Uh, that's one thing. But of course, uh, in general, 
a healthy lifestyle is an important uh, protection from, from developing Alzheimer's disease. Good eating, lots of exercise, good sleep, all of these are, are helpful. I am all over that, by the way. I have just started a diet so I can get down to a good weight. I've watched my cholesterol numbers go way down. My my good numbers go way up. I'm super excited about that. I'm doing everything I can to try to keep myself from going down this path that has hit so many people in my family. So an exciting thing happened over the summer, and the international conference was here in Denver. Is that That's correct? Right. We were going to go to Amsterdam, but uh, the Netherlands uh, didn't allow large, uh, uh, you know, symposia. So they decided to have a mixed in-person and virtual meeting here in Denver. Uh, and all of us went, uh, both virtually and in person. Uh, masks were uh, required by everybody, and as far as I know, no one got COVID when they were at the uh, meeting, but there were many, many very important uh, papers being presented. Uh, of course, we presented ours, but we were very excited to to see others as well, I including some uh, new studies on Adjuhelm, which uh, were, were very helpful, and also studies on COVID-19, uh, one that I um, just... Uh, did a little interview with Nine News, uh, will be coming out soon, on the finding that some of the blood biomarkers that we see in people with Alzheimer's disease are also seen in people with COVID-19. That was discovered by a colleague of mine at NYU in Manhattan, uh, Dr. Thomas Wisniewski and his colleagues, and other people saw similar aspects of a relationship between COVID-19 and the inflammatory and other blood biomarkers of, of Alzheimer's disease. So that's very exciting, especially since we're carrying out a study now to see whether our favorite drug, GNCSF, actually uh, improves uh, mice that uh, have COVID-19. So a lot of these disorders are connected because inflammation is part of all of them. Mm -hmm. That's right. I want you to know you've dropped my jaw several times during this conversation today <laughs> with new information that you've brought forth. You know, across the country, I have watched a lot of different research. So we have Risa Sperling out there in Boston working on A4, and we know that the Australians are very busy. And so from this worldwide conference, did you walk away feeling like there are other labs that, that are onto something? And how much data and information do you share with one another? We share everything that we learn as quickly as we can. Um, and the reason, of course, is that a little hint uh, that may not even occur to the people who are carrying out the research may tickle a nerve cell in our brains and, and send us in a new direction and vice versa. So scientists like to share their results and they realize how important it is. So this international meeting set up by the Alzheimer's Association has uh, been the highlight of, of research uh, interaction uh, for the last uh, 15 more years. Um, 
And we're just very glad that we were able to continue it this year in this partial virtual, partial in-person setting. Well, there's so much to share. And it's really exciting because I don't think that people in general realize that it's important that you talk to each other as scientists. And you have your medical papers that are published. And and that information goes throughout your network, but not really to the general public. And so it's nice that we have this conference that some information can come out and maybe it's assimilated through the Alzheimer's Association or various uh, trade papers and so on and so forth to get people information about, you know, the exciting new research. And we need more new researchers. And we need people like you to uh, take the research and and turn it into something that is understandable by the lay public and, and, and get the word out that not only is there research going on now, there's research going on in the future, and it's all dedicated to the public. So the public really does need to uh, to be informed, and um, the press uh, or the virtual press are uh, very important for that. And, you know, I, I just want to ask you, it, it's been important to me to be able to be invited to speak to your research group. I, I love that a year ago when you had me come out and, and talk to your team, which has grown. I remember when it was just you and a couple of other people, Tim Boyd and so on and so forth. <laughs> now you have a lot of people sitting at the table. Uh, but to have them hear stories from people living with the disease, how important is that for your researchers to hear not only the clinical side um, and learn about the clinical side, but hear the real stories about people living with these diseases. Well, Jill, it's, it's very stimulating. Uh, you uh, coming to visit the uh, physicians and the scientists who are trying to understand, diagnose, and ultimately treat and maybe cure uh, Alzheimer's disease and related disorders was um, an important connection to the real world. Um, if we only see mice, uh, they don't talk back. Uh, if we only see our fellow researchers, um, uh, we may lose track of the fact that this is a disease that affects real people, and they are sitting on the edges of their chair for any hope that we may be able to give them. And, and that hope can be translated to the lay public by, by people like you. So having you come and, and get us re-energized for this goal, which has been so long in coming, um, uh, was very helpful. And you'll have to come back again. I would love to. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but I have been working with uh, Dr. Christina Vaughn, in the Movements Disorders Clinic, but she also works with Alzheimer's patients, and Dr. Samantha Holden, who's the director of the Memories Disorders Clinic. And for the last year, I've been teaching classes on behalf of UCH every month for families living with this disease. So I facilitate the class, but uh, the Memories Disorders Clinic uh, presents it. And one of the things that I've been doing is when I have an in-home assessment with a family, I ask the family if it's okay if I send whatever neurologist I'm working with, Dr. Pellick, Dr. Holden, Dr. Vaughn, Lily, whoever it is, the information that I have written 
about what I'm seeing in their home and ways that they can improve communication. And I just thought you might be interested to know that we have made that connection now uh, here in Denver so that um, as I'm working with families where they live and in their moment and gathering real-time information, we send that back to the doctors and give them a glimpse into these people's homes and their lives. I think that's a great uh, idea, and it reinforces uh, what we've all told each other, which is this is a big problem, and it can only be solved with collaboration. And that collaboration is not only between scientists and between scientists and physicians, but it's also between the patients, the participants in trials, their caregivers, their family members, um, and the public in, in general. Um, without the funding from the NIH through Congress, without the state funding that has come directly to the Alzheimer's and Cognition Center, we wouldn't be able to do our work. So everybody has a, a role to play, and we're in this together, and we, we will solve it, uh, but only together. Absolutely. And I just want to put one footnote to that. Those classes are free. They are free of charge to the families who want to participate. And we had them at the University of Colorado Hospital in one of the training rooms until COVID hit, and we've taken them to Zoom. So I'm looking forward to when we can get that back so we can have more people uh, included in that. But the one thing about Zoom that's been good is I have people from all over the world that get in on those classes, which is just incredible. Just a couple of other questions I want to ask you. And if you could explain... Why is posterior cortical atrophy considered a syndrome of Alzheimer's? Very good question. And that has been uh, an example of how the clinicians and the geneticists and the biochemists and the pathologists talk to each other. Um, So when they didn't talk to each other, posterior cortical atrophy was a different disorder. But when they started talking to each other and looking in the brains of people who died and donated their brain to uh, science who had clinical posterior cortical atrophy, it turned out that um, it was Alzheimer's disease. They had the same amyloid and the same tangles. It was just in a different part of the brain. And the reason that they had a different clinical symptom was because it was in a different part of the brain. But the thing that's so weird about those individuals is that they very often do not have a memory problem, at least early on. So a physician out in the community without behavioral neurology specialty training wouldn't recognize it as Alzheimer's because they said there's no memory problem. It is true that memory problems are a clinical symptom of most Alzheimer's disease, but not all. And and that's why we all have to talk to each other as much as possible. You know what's exciting to me, though, and I hope it is, I'm sure it is to you as well, is that we were never clear on any of this many years ago. Look how far we've come. Now in, now in the exactly. research center, we, we have the frontal temporal group and uh, Dr. Pressman who can work with them. And we have the Louis body, which Samantha Holden pays particular attention to. And, and we're just finding all these different diseases under the dementia flag that we can, in fact, uh, separate out and, 
and focus on more intensely, which I think is going to get us a lot further down the research road. You're absolutely right, and there are uh, important differences and important similarities, and having people who are expert on all of them all in one uh, you know, center has, uh, has been very invigorating and insightful. How do you think we're going to get more people excited about research? What, what can I do to help? What can, what can we as a public do to get more people excited about participating in clinical studies? They're afraid of them sometimes. Um, they don't know how they work. They're afraid it, the cost will fall on them totally. What do we do to get people in these trial matches and, and into your clinics? Well, I think that you've touched base on that already in the sense that your uh, your radio show is uh, doing exactly that, informing people of, of real science and uh, getting them excited about how they can participate, um, either in just plain learning about it and passing on that knowledge to their family and friends, or if they want uh, participating in, in research, uh, we have not only clinical trials, but also research of a longitudinal nature, following people over years to see how they develop as they age. Are they resilient and they, they stay exactly the same, or do they decline a little bit, or in unfortunate situations, uh, actually get Alzheimer's disease? We can't tell how to predict that if we don't have people participating in those longitudinal studies. Um, so if uh, people go on our website, as you have mentioned, uh, cumemoryresearch.org, or uh, go to uh, neuroresearch at cuanschutz.edu, uh, they can uh, volunteer to participate and they can learn um, because our, our, our data are out there for them. Anything that we can help, uh, we, we will do. And I walk the walk. I am part of a longitudinal study out of Washington University, St. Louis, and have been for 17 years. And uh, I've told you over and over I'd love to be in one of yours, but, um, you know, thankfully I don't have this problem right now. But I will tell all my listeners that it's not that difficult. You go through some neurobehavioral exams. They may take a few hours. They ask you questions that eventually make your brain a little bit tired. You may give a little spinal fluid, but nothing is uh, devastating. For the most part, it's not damaging or hurtful. And I cannot, cannot say enough how important it is that we get more people in your lab. And I am sending you people left and right as I can think of it. (laughs) And again, I will put information on how they can donate to your research because it's so important to me. And I've made that really clear. I I really appreciate you spending the time with me today. Do you have any parting words to just inspire anybody or any advice you could give to someone who thinks they might be presenting with symptoms? Well, I think that the uh, main thing to um, uh, remember, and that is that not all clinical symptoms of memory problems are Alzheimer's disease. There are other kinds of uh, disorders that can lead to memory problems that are more treatable at the moment than than Alzheimer's disease. So it is very important to express your concerns to your physician, make sure you're getting the best advice, um, 
and uh, take care of yourself uh, in in your daily lives and exercise, good eating, and uh, and cognitive stimulation. Well, I want to thank you for always putting the scientific and clinical terms into layman's language so my listeners and I can understand. You're very, very good at that. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, I work hard because communication, as you know, because it's your business, is uh, absolutely essential. Well, I appreciate you. I appreciate your team. Thank you for being on the show again. And you have uh, dropped new information today that I know I'm going to get a lot of listeners' emails uh, regarding. And it's very exciting news. I appreciate you so much. It's a pleasure, Jill. Thank you, Dr. Huntington Potter, for being on the show again today. And next week, I will have more resources, strategies, and techniques, as always, for you on Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. You've been listening to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. To learn more about her resources, services, classes, or to book speaking engagements, visit Jill's website at summitresiliencetraining.com. A new podcast drops every Tuesday, so join us as we learn more about dementias, resilience, and overcoming obstacles to find a positive outcome. Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz can be found on your favorite podcast provider. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. Musical and technical support provided by Brian Hunter. See you next week.